Blog Talk Radio. Hello and welcome to Gigabit Nation, Broadband Talk Radio. I'm your host, Craig Settles, and I want to thank everyone in the audience for taking time to be with us today. Uh, our mission, as always, is to provide information to help public, private, and nonprofit organizations get faster, better broadband everywhere it needs to be. Um, Universal Service Fund reform has been pretty much the centerpiece of the current FCC chairman's tenure. Uh, I would say a lot of energy, probably second only to the energy that went into the uh, national broadband plan itself, has been devoted to reforming this $4 billion plus uh, program that originally provided phone service in, in areas that couldn't get service otherwise. Uh, it was transitioning into providing broadband, and the idea then came around of, well, wouldn't it be good if we can now have um, this fund support broadband getting into rural communities that currently are underserved? Um, the first iteration of this reform is the uh, Connect America Fund. And it itself has been phased in, and, and the first phase has just been a $3 million program. We haven't even gotten to the second part yet, and there is a lot of unhappy campers that, that just don't particularly like this, this program. Uh, we figured it would be good to kind of delve in and understand, well, what exactly is going on with, uh, with the Connect America Fund? Why are so many people unhappy? Should they be unhappy? And ultimately, will this program impact communities that need broadband the most? And uh, for today's show, I've brought in a guest, a telecom uh, attorney out of, Was uh, out of Boston, Fred Goldstein. Fred, welcome to the show. Uh, well, thank you, Craig. Uh, just to correct, I'm not an attorney. I'm a telecom consultant with the Inter Isle Consulting Group. Ah, okay. Uh, sorry, my bad. Um, so, so give us a little bit more background about the kinds of things that you've done uh, in this telecom space and then sort of lead or transition into the, the discussion about the Connect America Fund and what's, what's wrong, what's right with that. Sure, Craig. Uh, I began in the telecom business in the 1970s actually working in a regulatory consulting firm uh, doing tariff analysis and uh, related matters uh, back in the days of regulated telephone rates when each state set the local rates for pretty much everything that the phone companies did. Uh, I also worked in industry, spent 14 years at Digital Equipment Corporation, both in internal telecommunications and on network product development. And I've uh, worked at several consulting firms, uh, BBN, Arthur D. Little, um, and uh, my own uh, INRI Consulting before joining the Inter-Isle Consulting Group. Most of my work is with competitive telecommunications providers, uh, such as the CLEX and cable and wireless companies, uh, and also with uh, state and local government customers who have large uh, telecommunications requirements, often very specialized and very price-sensitive. So I've been uh, following telecom, essentially, I like to say I've been working against the Bell system uh, for over 35 years. <laughs> so. <laughs> so you have a track record here. <laughs> yeah, I, I say I, I, I know them, but you know, not from the inside, but from uh, having always been on the other side of that game. So let's talk CAF. What... I think a lot of people know in general what is it, but if you had to explain to the to the layperson who's you know working on a broadband project, what is CAF and why should they care in their particular community? Sure, this matters for a few reasons. Uh, first off, there's a lot of money going into it, and it's being paid for through a tax on telecommunications. Uh, CAF is the essential reboot of the Universal Service Fund. And the way all this money is raised, uh, the FCC sets a quarterly tax rate on all, quote-unquote, interstate telecommunications services. So long-distance phone calls, VoIP services, um, not local telephone monthly rate, but the long-distance package portion of your rate. Um, and th those are all subject to the tax. And the rate is already over 17%. So when you know your wireless bill also there for for services that are mixed jurisdiction the rate is slightly lower but the the point is if you look at your phone bill you may have a bill that says 29.99 a month for this wireless plan 
but then there's another $4 or whatever of universal service tacked on top of that. And that's already being charged. So what CAF does is change the way that universal service is doled out. The uh, one part you could say is good is that the program does involve rethinking how much money is given to the rural telephone companies who are the recipients of the vast majority of the USF money. Um, so CAF at least made some attempt to put some cost controls there. Of course, those companies, it's their lifeblood, so they're tying it up in litigation. Um, so whether anything actually happens uh, quickly it remains to be seen. Mm-hmm. More importantly, it's supposed to make quote-unquote broadband available to 100% of the country. That's the goal, the purpose according to the National Broadband Plan and the the stated purpose of the CAF. And it sounds like a good idea. It sounds like motherhood and apple pie. Um, It's the details that really tie you up as to how they go about accomplishing that and who gets what money or how how it's managed. Mm -hmm. So the USF fund, which is so complex, I think, that people said it would take an army of lawyers, you know, 10 years to really sort out all of its details, you know, when it was still the, you know, the end thing. Um, the essence of it is basically you pay a telephone bill, there's a charge out there that, that comes off the bill or is part of the bill. Um, it goes into a big fund uh, that the FCC you know, controls in some way, form, or fashion. And it is, in theory, supposed to be used to, uh, originally was to pay for services in communities where they just weren't getting telephone service. With with CAF, is the same is it the same governing theory about how this is all supposed to work? I still continue to pay, you know, my phone bill. There's still some amount of money that gets yanked out of that that then goes to uh, the FCC, who in turn writes checks to telecom companies, and hopefully unserved areas will get broadband as well as phone service. That's right. As far as the revenue raising is concerned, it's still the same idea. They'll still take money uh, from the carriers who are allowed to pass it along. The tax is not on end users. This is tricky. The FCC levies the tax on the carriers themselves, your phone company. They're allowed to pass it along and almost always do. Um, there and even administering that is very complex because of the, the the way those rules are written up. They're all trying to hide the fact that it's a tax. They call it a fee. You know, they, they never use the word tax. It just quacks like a duck. You know, looks like a tax. Yeah, exactly. And 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 so it's it's levied indirectly and it's set quarterly, which is insane. They're thinking about changing that, uh, and it only applies to some things. But they're thinking about changing that. There is an open, still an open docket at the FCC to possibly revise how they collect the money. Right now, for instance, it's collected on interstate telecommunication services, but the scope of that keeps declining. It used to be, you go back when the USF took its current form in 1996, that long-distance calling was fairly expensive, and so by taxing long-distance, they could raise enough money. The tax was around 3%. Well, What's happened since then is that the price of long-distance calls has gone way down. This is a good thing. Now, many people, probably most, are on some kind of a calling plan where you can make all the domestic calls you want, and they don't care if they're local or long-distance at the retail level. But at the wholesale level, between the carriers, they make incredibly important distinctions between local, in-state, and interstate long-distance. Those are all subject to different prices between the carriers. And they're all subject to different rules for taxation. And so USF is only levied on the interstate long-distance services and on other interstate services that are officially classified as telecommunications. Now, if you have DSL in your house uh, as your Internet, until 2006, that was considered mostly telecommunications. So you might have been paying Verizon or AT&T 35 bucks a month for DSL, and some part of that, between 20 and $30 of that, was considered telecommunications and was taxed. Now, uh, the FCC changed that rule in 2005 and said, oh, no, it's all, quote-unquote, information service now, not telecommunications service. Uh, now, what that did is actually shut off access to DSL 
to independent Internet service providers, and that's why we have an argument over network neutrality. That changed two things. One is that it shut off competitive entry to ISPs, but the other is that it took this out of the USF pool. It meant that Verizon and AT&T and uh, Quest, now CenturyLink, didn't have to pay the USF tax on their DSL anymore. And so with less of the tax base, the rate jumped. And then as more people went to lower cost long distance, the rate jumped. And so the rate went from 3 to 17% over the course of about 12 years. So uh, there's a real problem on the collection side. What they're doing now to change things on CAF at the other end is really on the payout side. The old rules of USF was that it was divided into three funds. One of them, the Rural Health Care Fund, is pretty small. It's just there to subsidize uh, telecom service, especially Internet access, to rural medical clinics. It's you know small number of dollars compared to the rest. Right. There's the Schools and Library Fund, and this is sometimes called the Gore Tax because Al Gore championed this in the late 90s. And this is money that subsidizes Internet access for K-12 schools. Now, the Schools and Library Fund has some rules that actually are very inefficient. It won't subsidize wireless Internet access, for instance. It really is there to subsidize traditional T1 lines going to your local phone company, which is an expensive service. Um, but you know that that's another uh, fairly significant hundreds of millions of dollars a year. But the, uh, there's also money going to support lifeline service and uh, low-income consumers. Uh, but the biggest part, by far, the largest fund in the Universal Service Fund is called the High Cost Fund. And the purpose of that is to subsidize telecommunications and up-to-date telephone service in rural areas. So if you go to a place like Wyoming or South Dakota, um, outside of the major cities, the odds are that the telephone service is primarily being paid for by the USF. So uh, you might be in New York and paying $20 a month for a basic local phone line plus your calling plan. You might be in you know, any major Bell area and paying between $15 and $25 a month for basic telephone service plus features plus long-distance calling. But if you're in some of these rural areas, your basic telephone rate's even lower. They're pay, paying, they've been paying you know, 8 to $15 a month. Um, some of these are cooperatives where some of the money comes back to the subscribers as the, the official profits of the cooperative are returned to the subscribers, so the net price is very low. So these companies never ask for a rate increase. They might be spending $30 a month, to supply their customers, they might be spending $300 a month. There are places, there are phone companies spending hundreds of dollars a month for each phone they serve in their total expenses. And that money all comes from the Universal Service Fund, you know, above that first $10 or so, whatever they're charging. Mm -hmm. uh, and, and so the idea of the law was to have, quote-unquote, reasonably comparable rates. Rural areas should have rates that are reasonably comparable to urban rates. But what that really means in practice is that the rural companies get a huge subsidy and often have lower rates. CAF makes some reforms. What CAF does is first off say that they can no longer charge less. They have to raise their prices. Before they get subsidies, the rural rates have to rise to among the higher of the rates in the country. They, you know, they will have set a benchmark rate that tends to be a little higher, like in the 20s per month for basic service. Um, that'll help a little, but what they're also doing, and this is what makes it different, is adding the subsidy. Instead of covering telephone service, it now covers broadband, whatever that means. <clears throat> and and so this, you know, one of my complaints is that they're using the word broadband, which is an adjective, as a noun. But you know, broadband is really a couple of different things. There's the broadband telecom itself, the wire, the DSL, the piece of cable. And there's the Internet access, which is the service, the content. And they treat this as one thing, and what they're really doing is subsidizing both the ISP function and the expensive wire, even though the ISP function is naturally competitive. So if every ISP had access to the wire, you'd have a choice of ISPs. But under CAF, they're subsidizing one ISP in each 
quote-unquote unserved area or each rural area. So it's doing now to say you will now have one phone company, which is the one ISP in that area, and the government will pay the cost of that. You'll get in your benchmark for that is four megabits down, one megabit up as the speed. So if you don't have that already, then CAF will essentially pay someone to provide that service. That's the main new thing CAF does. Is this basically then reinforcing a monopoly? Yes. <laughs> to be blunt, it's uh, and again, this is a change from the old rules. The old when the, when the Telecom Act was written in 1996, it said that Universal Service Fund was portable, which meant that there could be more than one company in a given location eligible to receive universal service. So if you subscribe to, again, if say you're in South Dakota and you got phone service from uh, a rural telephone company, they'd get money. But if you switched your service to a wireless company called Western Wireless, I made a big business of this, uh, Western Wireless played this game. They were a certified, competitive, eligible telecommunications carrier, CETC. So Western Wireless was setting up a fixed service using their wireless network to deliver fixed telephone service, which is possible. And they would get under what was called the you know, rule was to match. So if you were in an area with a local phone company got $100 a month in subsidy, then Western Wireless got $100 a month in subsidy for your line. Now, that would sound, okay, we're shifting the money from one company to the other, right? But it didn't work that way because your local rural subsidized phone company was not entitled to receive $100 per line. They were entitled to receive a certain number of dollars per month in total based on their revenue requirement, based on how the accounting rules worked. So let's say that you were in the East Overshoe Telephone Company area, and East Overshoe Telephone Company was entitled to receive $100,000 a month from the Universal Service Fund. Well, if you took your $100, you were one of a 1,000 customers, you took your $100 a month subsidy and gave it to Western Wireless, what it meant was that the other 999 subscribers, the subsidy would go up for them. So the per-subscriber subsidy would go up. The FCC was paying twice, or the USF was paying twice. The trouble with this was that it was double payment. And so the FCC's answer to that was not to tell the rural phone companies, hey, if you want to keep your money, you've got to be competitive and win your customers back. Instead, it was to say, no more money for competitive providers. And so the Connect America Fund says there'll be one provider in an area. All the existing competitive providers are being phased out. Western Wireless was bought, and uh, its assets ended up in Verizon, which gave up Verizon Wireless, which gave up that subsidy money uh, agreed to, uh, and likewise Sprint agreed to phase out those subsidies. So part of CAF is there'll be no more subsidies to these competitive carriers. There'll be one subsidized carrier in each location. The other thing, though, that is slightly competitive is that instead of saying that the one subsidized carrier is the local phone company, whether that's AT&T or a 500-line mom-and-pop company, that they'll be bidding, competitive bidding. Whoever bids the least to serve an area potentially wins the subsidy. So if you want to go out to a rural area and say, I will provide service for $10,000, and the local phone company says, we want $15,000, well, you get the 10000 and the FCC doesn't give the local phone company 15000 and they go belly up because their money is all... Basically, most of their money is going to loans that they took out, mostly from the Department of Agriculture's Rural Utility Service, to build their network. So it's, it's going to be very interesting. This is actually uh, something that makes the Department of Agriculture rather unhappy. There's a lot of uh, department uh, wrangling going on in the government here. So, yeah, under the new plan, there'll be one provider, and they have not determined yet who's eligible to bid. So whether it can be a small community provider or a wireless Internet service provider or whether it has to be one of the big telecom companies, well, those eligibility rules have not yet been published. The FCC is still thinking about that. 
And this is where a lot of the uh, – actually, before we go on, uh, just a little housekeeping thing. If uh, people in the audience are listening uh, and you're in the chat room, if you could refresh your screen, because right now we're not showing any of the guests. I know there are folks out there, but um, if you can just refresh your screens, that will uh, help me visually here see who's in the uh, who's in the chat room. All right, sorry, didn't, didn't mean to interrupt. But, um, but this is the source of a lot of – the, the confusion, right? No one knows who exactly is going to benefit. No one knows really how this reverse auction thing is going to work. And uh, it just seems like there is a number of issues, uh, uh, confusion. It just seems like there's a lot of confusion right now. Is, is that a fair assessment? Yes, that's a very fair assessment. Uh, you know, the Connect America Fund was introduced. The FCC has been working on universal service since the law was written in 1996. Uh, the original docket to write the rules for the USF is still open, and over the years they've introduced more dockets and more proposed rules, and there's this process that the FCC has to follow for rulemaking where they release a proposal and accept comments from the public and then make a decision. Although in this case, they ask for more comments, and they wait a year or two and ask for more comments. And they went around and never made a decision on most of these issues until November of 2011. And intercarrier compensation is a different topic that's totally intertwined with universal service. Intercarrier compensation, what carriers pay each other for part of a call, is really the reason that the USF exists. Before 1996, the rural companies got pretty much all their subsidy money from the long-distance companies. In other words, when you call someone in a rural area, you might be paying your long-distance company $0.10 cents a minute for the call. They might be paying, if you're in New York or you know, San Francisco in an urban area, your local carrier might get half a cent or, in those days, a cent or two a minute. But a rural carrier in those days might have gotten 20 cents a minute. So out of every long-distance call, they were getting 20 cents a minute in some places or more. Mm-hmm. And, you know, in other words, the long-distance companies lost money on them, but that was the rule. They had to deliver the call um, and had to pay the price. The FCC regulated the price. Well, those prices have come down. Now it's rare for very rare for any interstate call to be more than three cents coming out of the intercarrier compensation, and the FCC has proposed lowering that to zero over the next nine years. So they needed the Universal Service Fund to make up for it. So you can't separate the two topics, even though they look different. The FCC released its report and order in November 2011. I call this the War and Peace Order because it was 752 pages long. Oh, yes, I remember that one. Now, I didn't read it, but I remember it. Yeah, I actually did read it. And, you know, by FCC standards, that's pretty long. They've done worse. But it still was a big slog. And the reason it was so long was not just that they were introducing new rules. They were introducing more questions. Much of that was further notice of proposed rulemaking, which is to say lists of questions, hundreds of more questions. And then in 2012, they answered some of the questions and asked more questions. So it's a continual process of, of rulemaking, and there's just so many questions on the table. And there, I hate to say it, but very often there's a simple, obvious, direct, clean answer that makes for neat, easy-to-understand rules. If that's there, the FCC will avoid it like the bubonic plague. Mm-hmm. They like convoluted rules, uh, it's sometimes thought of as a make-work-for-Washington lawyers program. Um, I, you know, no one Washington FCC lawyer who always jokes about this, you know, the FCC is doing a good job to help keep his kids' uh, college tuition paid. Because, <laughs> because these rules are so, well, they're not just complicated. They're contradictory. They don't make clear lines. They like to put stakes in the ground rather than lines and fences. And the difference is, when you do something they didn't envision, well, what stake are you nearest is a tough question compared to what side of the fence are you on. So they're always writing these sloppy rules. 
And so Universal Service Fund is no exception. They've got new rules, and they've got to figure out how much money the incumbent rural companies continue to get. That was a big change, right? The, the, the war and peace order made a huge change of that. Under the old rules, it was a blank check, quite literally. As long as they follow the accounting rules, a rural phone company was a blank check. And let me tell you, some of the money they were collecting was crazy. They were allowed to spend anything to provide telephone service. And here's why broadband is changing the rules for broadband is such a joke. Under the old rules, as long as it delivered telephone service, they could build a network, build their physical plant that was capable of doing anything else. So all the rural phone companies, not almost most of the small, heavily subsidized rural phone companies, the cooperatives, there's a lot of them. They cover a lot of the country's territory, only a couple of percent of the population. But there's hundreds of these small companies, uh, especially out in the western and plains, plain states and in some parts of the south. These little phone companies pull fiber to the home. They installed modern networks. They have the best 100% coverage of broadband. Now, the subsidy was for dial tone. But by installing a fiber optic network or by installing a fully modern network that also had DSL capabilities, they were technically providing phone service. And so they were doing a very good job. They're doing a great job because we were paying for it, but the rules allowed that. Um, Now, under the new rules, the model is different. Under the new rules, there's actually a computerized model that the FCC is using to look at the terrain, how many roads there are, uh, population density along the roads, all this computerized databases, and it's supposed to spit out how much it should cost to provide telephone service in a given area. (laughs) And if you are a local phone company spending more than that, you'll, you'll get your payments cut. Now, a lot of them, frankly, deserve it because, let me tell you, there's some very nice gilded operations. They don't really put bowling alleys in their office buildings, but they almost could. <laughs> but on the other hand, there's some very conscientious rural people who are just doing what needs to be done, doing a good job and not wasting money. And even there, the formula might just be wrong because a model isn't the real world, and it might actually cost more than it seems. And, and so lots of litigation over replacing human judgment you know, let's go back. The reason it was a blank check was because they stopped evaluating these things. They stopped. Used to happen back in the 90s, the old rule was your state regulatory commission, every state commission, oversaw the rates of the local phone companies, and most of the money was coming from in-state, long distance, and the subscribers. And so whatever money they needed was being watched over by the state. With the Federal Universal Service Fund, the state leaves the rates alone, and whatever the difference is between the revenue requirement and whatever they're taking from in-state, the FCC's USF makes up the difference. So the bigger the money being wasted, if East Overshoe Telephone Company is wasting $100,000 a year on a bowling alley, then the FCC takes that money from other states and sends it to South Dakota. If you're the South Dakota regulator, you have no interest in holding down the cost. So I call this the, I'll gladly pay you, you know, I'll have someone else buy you a free lunch. You know, <laughs> it's sending someone else the bill. Uh-huh. It's a crazy way to do business. Under the new CAF, they're not implementing having someone supervise. They're having a computer supervise and saying, well, this is what the computer says, you know, from the formula you should be getting, and if you don't like it, litigate. (laughs) So it just moves from regulators to lawyers. So let's ask the $4 billion question. Is any of this going to result in better broadband being delivered to some number of poor, unserved communities somewhere in rural America? Somewhere it will, but, you know, I don't think as many as you think. And here's, here's again why. You can divide the country into really three types of territory. There are the urban areas where the cost of service is low and they have broadband because it's reasonably economical to deliver. 
these places have cable. As long as there's a few subscribers per mile, it's worth stringing cable TV. And they have ca- every, almost every cable system has cable modems. So you've got cable in all the urban and suburban areas. The Bell companies and other telephone companies deliver DSL in, again, the urban and suburban areas. Then you've got the rural areas that are served by the small subsidized phone companies. Most of them already have broadband because the blank check of the old Universal Service Fund let them deliver it. The hole in the middle is the Bell rural areas. If you have a rural area that is still served by AT&T, Verizon, or CenturyLink, then you've got a problem. They're the areas that don't have broadband. These are the places in downstate and from, you know, southern New Jersey, northern New York State, um, you know, rural parts of Texas, but not the farthest parts. You get to these low-density markets where it's just not worth it for the bells, and you run into another animality in the new rules. Again, it used to be they were treated as utilities, and they were entitled to a rate of return. That meant that the bell companies, up until the early 90s, could say, well, we spent all this money, and whether we spent the money um, out in a rural area or spent the money in Manhattan didn't make a difference. A dollar invested was a dollar invested, and they were entitled at the statewide level to make the same profit. And so the more money they invested, the more profit they made. Same rule if you were urban or rural, the Bells and the rural companies were all entitled to make usually a 10 to 11% rate of return on their invested capital. Well, the Bells changed the rules. They actually got the rules changed, and so now they're on what's called alternative regulation or price caps, and in some states their retail prices are fully deregulated. So what that means is they have no incentive to build up their rate base because they can charge whatever they want, and if it's not profitable, they lose money. So the incentive is now not to invest additional money. The Bells have laid off more than half of their craft workers they had 20 years ago. They're much smaller companies, and they've invested very little. Their equipment, their plant, everything is old. Their central office switching equipment, most of it's over 20 years old. And this is computerized stuff. They've got, you know, I call these paleo computers, you know, computers nobody else has seen in years still running the phone network. Uh, because they've not invested in new stuff. And uh, they just continue to milk the old because that's the most profitable thing to do. And it's coming home to roost. Now, you come to a rural area, and if it's a Bell rural area, they don't get subsidies because the subsidy is based on the telephone company's average cost. So if you have a big urban market that's making a lot of profit, and then a rural area that's losing money, you average them together, you're still making profit, you don't get a subsidy. But if you're not required to serve the rural area, you don't. And that's why AT&T's new proposal, the AT&T petition at the FCC, um, is uh, to essentially end the rules, deregulate public switch telephone network, and reclassify the whole telephone service as, quote, information service, that proposal takes away the obligation of the bell companies to even provide plain old dial tone. They can just ignore rural areas. Well, where the Connect America Fund comes in is to fill in that gap. What the Connect America Fund does is say that in all subsidized areas, whether bell or non-bell, there'll be one subsidized carrier. Now, if it's a rural area who's already subsidized, the existing carrier stands to lose the subsidy if someone underbids them. In the Bell rural areas, it's new subsidies. So someone can go in and say, okay, we're now providing, um, we're going to now provide broadband service in this, you know, forested area of upstate New York or of northern Michigan or, you know, wherever it is, they can go into a rural area and when this auction takes place, someone other than a local phone company, existing local phone company, can come in and bid for support. So can the Bells. And the AT&T and Verizon will now be entitled to get support subsidies in areas where they aren't now subsidized. So it does not look, frankly, like they're interested. CenturyLink is. It looks like AT&T and Verizon are 
less interested. They really want to focus on their wireless business and not on rural telephone. But uh, essentially, it's those areas that have been ignored by the Bells. There will be money to upgrade service there. Uh, who can get the money, who will get the money is a big question. Uh, so that's the one place I expect to see potentially a real improvement in service once the program is up and running. For everyone else, it's not going to make much difference at the retail level. Hmm. That's um, <clears throat> that's kind of abysmal. So now, what about these cases where you have, I don't know, I'll call them middle-tier providers, you know, CenturyLink, Windstream, and so forth. They're saying, okay, well, we will take some of this money, but we won't take all that we're eligible to take. I mean, does that basically further, in essence, further hurt the the less the low population areas? Yes, and that gets back to the interesting question of what's been done so far in this past year. Connect America Fund was designed as a two-phase program, essentially. There was a short-term phase one and then the long-term phase two. So the FCC announced this a year ago. And the first year, 2012, was supposed to be the phase one year, with the much more complicated auctions and stuff being phase two, which would begin in 2013 once they got the rules finished. So phase one was a short-term set of rules to say, and really addressing those rural bell company and uh, also Windstream, the, but these are all the so-called price cap carriers, the companies who were not receiving the subsidies. And in many of the rural areas, Windstream isn't subsidized. So if you had, or wasn't subsidized much. But under the phase one rule, which was supposed to be a one-time event with a budget of $300 million, it was a one-time capital grant program where an existing incumbent telephone company could say, we will serve X number of new broadband customers who we would not have served before. So if we have 10,000 broadband, well, if we have 10,000 telephone customers who are out of reach of our broadband service and are not profitable for us to serve with broadband, and we promise we had never intended to provide service, had to be something they said they would not, were not planning to upgrade. What phase one said is if you promise to upgrade these additional number of customers, you'll get $775 one-time capital grant for each additional broadband customer. So you could spread your, spread your uh, broadband coverage out as long as the $775 sweetener made it worth your investment dollars. Now, frankly, phase one was a colossal failure. Uh, and there are a couple things going on. The most important pro-competitive thing in phase one was a rule that said that none of this money could go where there was already an unsubsidized competitor. So if an area had cable, the phone company did not get money to build DSL to compete with cable. And if an area had a fixed wireless ISP, which is what much of rural America is the best service you can get, the wireless ISPs, that too, as long as they were providing a certain minimum quality of service, then there would be no CAF phase one money. So the phone companies were not being given money to overbuild wireless ISPs. That's good. That was the ISPs fought for that, and the FCC uh, went with them. CenturyLink cried in their beer. And uh, or whatever it is they drink in northern Louisiana, bourbon. They protested. They said, "No, we don't believe these wireless ISP coverage maps. We how can a wireless ISP cover thirty miles?" And the answer is, they have ten towers. Uh, you know, this was like over the head. CenturyLink thought that a wireless ISP was a Wi-Fi hotspot. You know, that could serve Starbucks. But these guys can. They they put up towers or, you know, for, they don't actually usually build a tower. They'll often use a grain silo or a roof, but, you know, a phone pole. But a wireless ISP can go in flat country 10 miles from a tower. And often, you know, they can't go that far everywhere, but they put up many low-cost base stations. They're, you know, very cheap compared to what a cellular base station costs. 
So, yeah, they do cover this territory. CenturyLink didn't believe it, but they didn't get the money. So it turned out that CenturyLink was allowed to take maybe $30 million, and they whined. They wanted 90 and couldn't do it because those pesky wireless ISPs claimed to have coverage there already, which they did. And, and, and therefore, AT&T uh, took zero. I think it's zero. Verizon took zero. I mean, they, they didn't want it. You know, CenturyLink you know, wanted more than they got. The other big player, the only one who took a lot of money, the biggest player was Frontier. Now, Frontier Communications is an interesting company. Um, it, it's the descendant of some rural telephone companies and the Rochester Telephone Company of New York. And they got big fast about three years ago when they bought a whole bunch of territory from Verizon. Uh, I don't know if you remember the old GTE, General Telephone? Mm-hmm. Right, GTE was a big telephone company. And in fact, in the 90s, before the consolidation of the giants, GTE was the largest phone company in the country. They were bigger than any of the seven bells uh, after they bought Continental Tel. So GTE was a, a good operation then, big size, mostly though rural. They had stuff all over the Midwest. They had stuff in the South. They had the Pacific Northwest, where you'd have the cities belong to the Bell Company, and then GTE in the surrounding countryside. Um, and so you, you go to southern Illinois or Indiana or rural Ohio, big cornfields upon cornfields that were GTE. Well, Verizon bought GTE mostly because it wanted the wireless. And so Verizon over the years has been getting rid of the rural GTE territories that came in that deal. And so they got rid of a couple of states to CenturyTel, which became CenturyLink when they changed their name. They got rid of some stuff to uh, a spinoff called Valor, which ended up becoming part of Windstream. And finally, they had a big spinoff a couple of years ago uh, to Frontier. And so Frontier picked up the Midwest. They picked up a big swath of Wisconsin, Illinois, Indiana, Michigan, Ohio, as well as uh, places in Oregon and Washington, some other states. And what matters here is that Frontier said, hey, we'll take this money. This wasn't rustic territory like in the Rocky Mountains. This is farm country, which costs money to serve, but is not horribly expensive. It's mostly little towns and, you know, built-up farm area. And so Frontier ended up taking over, taking more than anyone else, and almost all of it was in the state of Wisconsin. So phase one of Connect America Fund turned out to be, let's dump $47 million into Wisconsin, and about that much money spread around the other 49 states. Um, you know, so it was this is Frontier, Wisconsin, and nobody else. It's a funny thing. Everybody else spread very thin. So the FCC said, wait a second, we have $200 million left in this phase one budget. Now, you know, you could look at this as a government function and say, hmm, I didn't spend all the money that I took in from taxpayers. Should I, A, not spend the money and lower the tax rate? Or should I, B, find some way to spend this money because it's in my budget? And, of course, if you're the FCC, you choose the latter approach. So they've got an open docket now to say that we've got this, leftover phase one money, what should we do with it before phase two is ready? It's like, should we loosen the rules and say, well, okay, there's a wireless ISP, but the old rules said they had to be providing 768K service. Let's say that if they're not providing four megabit service, we'll overbuild them. So now suddenly companies that thought they had been saved from subsidized competition might get subsidized competition if that's what the FCC decides to do. Um, you know, they, they, they may do something else to try and get phone companies to take more money. Uh, I, for one, don't think this is the greatest idea ever, but that is on the table. So, yeah, there is this sort of phase one. But the idea was a one-time capital infusion to convince these bigger phone companies, the Bells, the Windstreams, uh, Frontiers, uh, to take money to build out broadband into their rural areas, which otherwise, in that sort of averaging method, were the ones that were being ignored. <clears throat> kind of makes you want to go for that bourbon, doesn't it? Or whatever <laughs> that they drink down in Louisiana. Yeah. So let me let me change direction for a quick second. Um, 
So in addition to all this other confusion that you have laid out fairly well for us, uh, what about this whole thing of now upping the broadband speed or the speed that require, that, that defines eligibility? Because in the circus that has unfolded, you have um, a low, like really low old uh, ceiling for broadband, which is sort of guided phase one. I think it was what the the 700k, 200k requirement from yesteryear that defined broadband. And now they're saying, okay, well we're going to raise that to four and one. When in reality, um, you know that's pretty pitiful broadband in any rate. But that is causing a lot of of heartburn as well, uh, and then probably confusion as well. I want to address the confusion part first. What is that all about, and why is this just totally um, crazy? Right. Well, this gets a little confusing because there's a couple of different numbers there. The the four and one number, the four megabit number, is what the CAF money says. If you're going to take CAF money, that's what you have to deliver. That's the minimum you have to deliver. You can deliver better, but if you can't deliver four and one, then you uh, aren't eligible for CAF. And I think that money really came from the wireless industry, where if you take the uh, LTE, fix, uh, LTE cellular and use that technology to deliver fixed service, it's reasonable for it to deliver four-in-one. Now, that's not economical. If you look at mobile services, the kind of data caps, wireless mobile services under the standard Verizon-type wireless plan or AT&T, those very capped services don't count because they really are mobility plans. And by the way, NCAF is also a mobility fund, which is giving money by mile of road in the air, in, along major roads that don't have coverage. And they've already done that auction to give out you know, a few million dollars to some you know, very remote roadways. But that, that was a small thing. But here you're saying uh, fixed wireless. If you're a, you know, Verizon, AT&T, or Sprint, you can deliver four-in-one service using your cellular network to fixed customers as a separate product. And in fact, they do have rural products. Verizon, I know, does have a product now, I think it's called Home Connect, maybe, for for doing fixed wireless service. Uh, so that's where the 401 comes from. The 768 number is the old, sort of an old definition of what is considered reasonable broadband. And that's yeah, pretty pitiful. But the idea was that if an existing ISP, unsubsidized, was providing 768 or 2 megabits, you know, less than 4, if they were providing less than four megabits, but at least 768, then they would not get overbuilt. So that was really the safe harbor against competition, against subsidized competition, the 768. Now, the four-in-one number you know, for a, a fiber plant, that's terrible. Obviously, fiber optic can go better, cable can go better. But wireless and even fixed wireless does run into problems, even getting four megabits out of fixed wireless is a challenge. So when you're dealing in rural areas, um, you know, it, it's not great, but these are people today who are on dial-up and on long wires, rural wire, dial-up at 14 kilobits and stuff like that. There's some really bad Internet access in some of those areas. So, you know, 768's pretty poor by our standards, but 4 megabits isn't bad. The only thing you really can't do with the 4 megabits is watch high-definition TV. And if you're in those areas... You know, but your best bet is to put up a satellite dish for TV because it's really hard to reach those people. Right. So, well, then my my next question then is, um, given all that you have laid out, which is you know a nice summary of that, in essence, is a tip of the iceberg. Is there anything that communities, that consumers, that voters, that somebody can do to salvage? this whole situation. In other words, turn it into something that remotely looks like the promoted benefit of why we were doing this reform exercise in the first place. Oh, that's a good question. That's a tough one, too. You know, it really is in the hands of the FCC, and they are a political animal. They do sometimes listen. Uh, they listen to Congress. They sometimes listen to pressure groups. They sometimes listen to communities. And you have to participate. People often participate or participate the wrong way. The FCC has something called the Electronic Comment Filing System, ECFS, which you can find on their website under the e-filing. 
and they have a way of filing easy, very easy filing of comments in major, uh, in major dockets. Uh, what's unfortunate is that people spam it. People, you know, have these letter writing campaigns. A hundred thousand people writing the same one paragraph letter. You know, I want network neutrality or something, which they don't even understand what they're writing. But some you know, radio talk show told them to. <laughs> do a letter writing campaign. I don't think those are terribly influential. But people should make their voices heard and make, you know, try and make cogent arguments that explain what's to be done. They they need to also let their state regulators to some extent know their state legislators. We've got a problem now at the state level. Many states have uh, so deregulated the phone companies that they have no responsibilities anymore. And the Bell companies are using the American Legislative Exchange Council, ALEC, which is essentially a, a right-wing organization that takes legislators and passes bills between them, to introduce the same bill into many state legislatures through ALEC members that totally deregulate the phone companies and let them get away with you know, uh, no service, you know, the assumption that it's fully competitive, which it really isn't. So it's it's really a matter of paying attention to the political process, paying attention to the FCC. Um, you know, s- support your local uh, community network provider if there is one, rather than the big bell company. You know, maybe. Uh, and uh, it, you know, there's really no real easy thing though for people to do except try and uh, stay on top of things, and. Um, you know, make their voices heard. It's it, it's not a simple question, uh, but it's it's a lot of money that you know you're being taxed on every every month, and it's you know being squandered. So you want it to be used correctly, and you want good service, and we're not getting it. The U.S. is nowhere near the best broadband service in the world. We're we're paying more than most countries and getting less. Mm-hmm. Uh, we have much less competition. The the so-called competitive model that the FCC has been pursuing for the past 12 years. They really changed direction in 2001. I wonder why that happened. Mm-hmm. The FCC mm-hmm. changed to an anti-competition model at that point, where really it was just cable versus a phone company. And now they consider cellular to be competition, but that's an oligarchy, oligopoly. It's mm-hmm. not real competition. And that means higher prices and worse service. So we really need to get more competition in right. the service and more more openness in the networks we have. And in some respects, though, I think that that's what seems like the impossible hill to climb. You know, if you follow the tweets and the various messages of folks that are, you know, the activist groups, the progressive groups, you know, just basic everyday concerned citizens uh, and the smaller providers, the WISP, I mean, it's sort of like everybody – realizes what the problem is. They realize we have an issue of competition and it doesn't exist and that all of these these reforms and so forth kind of dance around the issue but it doesn't really get to the solution. Can we climb that hill? Can we somehow change the equation? That's a really good point, Craig, that you know we 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 aren't even discussing the issue correctly. They've they've controlled the conversation. Uh, the bell companies, the press takes the bell companies so you know so seriously and doesn't want uh, to really change the way business is done. Um, and we, we we have to start by not letting them confuse us. The confusion over terminology, VoIP, voice over IP, you know that that refers to many different things and. AT&T, for instance, is trying to get total end of pretty much all telecom regulation, all carrier of last resort obligations uh, other than under a subsidy. They're trying to get rid of the requirement that they interconnect to competitors' own networks. They're trying to get rid of the requirement they make any of their network available to any competitors. Uh, they're trying to you know, just totally roll back to 1950s level of monopoly. Uh, on, on the grounds that, oh, well, wireless is competition. And that's ridiculous. And con- part of this confusion is VoIP. The Internet is not the public switch telephone network. The Internet is the payload. The Internet is something carried across the network. It's an Internet, a network of networks, 
and it depends on the underlying wire. IP doesn't travel on Captain Kirk's subspace communicator. It needs the wire. But to listen to the FCC, I mean, when Colin Powell was running the FCC 10 years ago, he said, oh, well, I don't have to make the wire available to competitors anymore. They'll find a solution. You know, he was imagining that Star Trek would come up with a solution. And lo and behold, the laws of physics still apply. We don't have subspace. And the competitors went out of business because there was no alternative, in many cases, to the wire. Some ISPs went wireless, which in some parts of the country works, but a lot of ISPs went out of business. And so we, we really need to not let ourselves get confused. Voice over IP, yeah, yeah, the cable companies use it, but it's totally transparent. It's totally different from what, say, a Vonage does. Mm-hmm. And Vonage and the other companies who follow that model depend on your getting broadband. Wait a second, who are you getting broadband from? The cable or the phone company, but they already provide telephone service. So why would you buy it from a third party when you get better phone service from the cable or phone company? I mean, these are all natural questions, and you know, the, the regulatory decisions are made by ignoring that and pretending, frankly, we're all fools. I think they're playing a game of, I know I'm lying, you know I'm lying, I know you know I'm lying, we're all lying together. But that reporter over there isn't allowed to say that we're lying. There's that kind of plausible deniability. And that's the way the whole conversation works nowadays. It's not an honest dialogue. The regulatory dialogue is a lot of people throwing around talking points that they know to be false and regulators buying it for whatever reason. And the public is supposed to somehow go along because the mainstream press and also, many of the courts who are in on the joke pretend that it's honest. So, you know, don't believe that because it's IP, it's going to work better and we don't need, you know, we don't need access to the wire. You know, the phone network is the phone network, and good Internet service depends on access to the physical media. And they're trying to take that away or skimp on it and not provide uh, the high-quality media to everyone. Connect America Fund says we'll have the government pay for one provider and just one provider as as if that one provider could necessarily provide the service you want. But one size fits all is not how information should work. The Internet's like a newspaper. The Internet's a public, is The Internet's not a thing. The Internet is an agreement between networks. The Internet is inter-networks. It's many providers. And so having one ISP is like not having internet at all. It's like saying, here's the one newspaper, but we promise it's fair and balanced. And that's the problem with this model. If Connect America Fund were funding the transport to the internet, but you could choose your ISP, it would be a much better plan. But it's not doing that. What it's doing is subsidizing what is now an unregulated information service and taking, and that's the main difference from the old USF. Under the old rules, they were subsidizing the wire, technically not subsidizing the ISP, which, you know, once once the wire is subsidized, it doesn't cost much. Under the new rules, they're subsidizing the ISP and keeping other ISPs off the wire. That's just, that's really kind of crazy. So, really, we have to try and reorient towards real competition and all the competition at different layers where it fits and not have this vertically integrated idea that broadband is one thing. Think mm-hmm. about the broadband wire is one thing and the services atop it are something else and that maybe your choice of ISP and mine might be different. I might not care about a usage cap because I don't want to pay as much because I don't want to do video. And you might want to do video. That's fine. We should have a choice. Uh, and that's where we don't have in this country. And that's right. why... Right, Prices go up, and, you know, with the CAF, everyone continues to pay. Okay. Well, we are at our we're at the end of our show, and I want to thank you, Fred, for all of these very good insights. And I also want to remind our listeners, uh, we had um, uh, Rita Stoll on the show on Monday, and she talked a lot about some of these issues as well. And also Sharon Gillette, who uh, formerly worked with the FCC, was on last week. I think between those two and today's interview, there is a lot of valuable knowledge that people 
need to arm themselves with. So everybody who's listening need to pass this link, pass this show along to others in the trenches, others who are in the state houses. You know, we've got to somehow, I think, mobilize, and I think these three shows together provide a very good uh, groundwork for that. So once again, Fred, thank you very much for, for being on the show today. Thank you, Craig. I've enjoyed it. All righty. And thank you to our audience for listening in. Uh, we'll continue to bring good programming in. Uh, have a great day, and we'll talk again soon.